Father, that is the cry of our hearts because that is the truth. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So show us that truth afresh this morning. Give us eyes to see Jesus, ears to hear Jesus, hearts to love Jesus, knees to bow before Jesus, and hands and feet to serve Jesus. And help me this morning to love your people well by speaking the truth of your word to them as I speak it to myself. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I invite you to find a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have a Bible for you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. Or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible located in the hymnal rack beneath you. It's page 1011 and 1012 in the copy of the church Bibles this morning. And as you're finding your place there in Mark chapter 14... Let me just say, as we come to this text, you can see, you can almost see or hear Mark pumping the brakes. Now, I know that is, that is a term way back from the 70s, you know, when you used to have to pump the brakes. Today, you don't have to pump the brakes because they're all electronic. But in my day growing up, you had to pump the brakes. And Mark is slowing us down intentionally as we come closer to the cross of Jesus. It is the culmination and the climax, the entire purpose of Jesus coming to earth. He comes on purpose for this purpose, to lay down his life for sinners and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is what we begin seeing played out in Mark chapter 14. And Mark's saying, just slow down. I don't want you to miss any of this. It is so vital, so significant for all of us because in this text this morning, we are going to see how deeply we need Jesus. So let's pick up the text. I'm going to begin reading in Mark chapter 14 and verse 22, although I'll be preaching this morning only on verses 26 through 31. This is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples eating Passover, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, and when they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to Jesus, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of our God. And this is the danger of self-reliance and self-confidence playing out before our eyes. 
It reminds me that back in the 2006 Winter Olympic Games in Torino, Italy, Lindsay Jacobellis, a 20-year-old American snowboarder, was going to be the clear winner of the gold medal in the Women's Snowboard Cross. As she approached the final jump with the finish line right there in sight, she decided in midair to play to the crowd and to add some flair to her final jump by grabbing her snowboard. But she lost her balance and fell. Her failed showboating resulted in a low score, allowing Tanya Frieden of Switzerland to win the gold medal. Lindsay's gold medal dreams lie shattered in the wake of her self-confidence. And what was true of Lindsay Jacob Ellis has been true of many of us as followers of Jesus. You see, the problem is, is that we can easily overestimate our inherent ability to stand strong in the face of temptation, and we end up falling prey to sexual sin once again. Or we go off on that cranky coworker or that demanding boss once again, or we become privy to a juicy piece of gossip. And we don't stop it. Instead, we pass it along yet again. It may be some other sin for you where your resolve to never fall prey to that sin again lies shattered in the wake of your self-confidence. That's what's happening in this text this morning where the big idea is this. The greatest danger we face is not outside of us, but inside of us because it's the danger of self-confidence. It's the kind of pride that says, this is no big deal. I'm, I'm enough for this. I've got this. I'm good for this. I can handle this. Because as the song says, what doesn't kill me makes me... All right, we'll try that one more time. As the song says, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And we forget the truth that was just read to us from John chapter 15 and verse 5, where Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Not without me, you can do most things or some things or even one thing. Without me, you can do nothing. Do we really believe that? Are we truly convinced of that? Do we really live with an all-in, every-moment dependence upon Jesus for the strength to face temptation? Because this scene opens with Jesus demonstrating great strength, great power in the face of temptation. And for us to really get that, we need to climb into the pages of this scene. Remember that Jesus has just observed the Passover meal with his disciples he has transformed it into the Lord's Supper. And then Jesus does in the upper room with his disciples what we do here in this room during our communion service. Jesus sings a hymn with his guys. Now that may seem to be at first just an insignificant detail, but it isn't because it shows us where Jesus finds strength in the face of temptation. Because if you'll remember, Jesus has faced constant perpetual temptation his entire earthly ministry. He's been tempted with alternatives to dying on the cross. 
You remember all the way back at the outset of his ministry that Satan takes Jesus up on a high mountain where Jesus can see all the kingdoms of the world. And there Satan says to Jesus, if you'll just for a moment bow down to me, I will give you everything your father promised you, everything you deserved, and you'll get it without the suffering of the cross. Of course, Jesus says no, because the kingdoms of the world are not Satan's to give. But the, the temptation to forego the suffering of the cross does not end there on that mountain with Jesus. It's a constant, every moment of every day. Even when Jesus tells his own disciples, listen guys, I need you to know what's coming for me. I am going to suffer and I am going to die on a cross and you'll remember that when Jesus tells his disciples that Peter pulls Jesus aside and puts his arm around Jesus and he says, Jesus, you know, all this talk about dying and death and the cross, let's just put the kibosh on that. Think bigger, Jesus. Think in terms of crowns and thrones and kingdoms. So Jesus, we cannot forget that Jesus is facing constant temptation to forego the suffering of the cross. And that's got to be especially true on this night where Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And all the way along, Jesus has known what is coming for him. Even on this night, he knows he knows that in just a few hours now, he will be mocked and taunted and beaten nearly beyond human recognition. He knows that in just a few hours, they will pluck out his beard and spit in his face and nail his hands and feet to a cross. Jesus knows. And you don't think it was a temptation for him to forgo that suffering? I don't know if you've ever considered how hard it would be for Jesus to know all of this in advance. If we knew everything that would happen to us in the future, we would not just be traumatized. We'd be paralyzed. That was my response when I was told that my high school classmates had been messing around with a Ouija board. By the way, young people, let me just say this to you. Never mess around with that stuff. Never play around with that stuff. It's not a game. It's a weapon in Satan's arsenal, and you never want to open yourself up to his influence. I wasn't there that night. My classmates were messing around with that Ouija board. That night when the Ouija board supposedly informed my classmates that I would be the first in my class to die on January 18th of my senior year of high school. Obviously, I'm standing before you this morning, so that did not happen. But the day my classmates shared that with me, I still remem remember the feeling of fear washing over me until I remembered that Satan is not in control of my life or death. God is. 
And that's why we do not see a fearing Jesus here. We see a singing Jesus here. He's not cowering. He's courageous. He's not staggering. He's strong. And so we need to ask, how can Jesus be so strong in the face of such massive temptation and the suffering that's coming for him on the cross? And the answer is found not just in the fact that Jesus is singing, but in what Jesus is singing. Now, I know that Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus is singing here, but he's singing the word of God. He's singing a hymn. And we have to remember that for the Jews during Jesus' day, the hymn book that they would have used would have been the book of Psalms. And it was customary at the conclusion of the Passover meal for the Jews to sing specifically one of the Hallel Psalms. Those are the Psalms we find, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They're praise songs, like Psalm 116, verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death. And Psalm 118, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? These aren't just casual psalms for Jesus. These are psalms that will be deeply meaningful for Jesus because they are about to become intensely personal for Jesus when he suffers and when he dies. These are songs about the Father's love. These are songs about the Father's deliverance. These are songs about not fearing what man can do to him because God is for him. Jesus finds strength in singing God's word. And what's true for Jesus is true for us as the followers of Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, we have reason to sing. We always have a reason to sing like Jesus. Because we, like Jesus, will never face temptation without our Father's love or without our Father being on our side. And if He is for us, who can be against us? That is why Jesus can march toward the cross. That's why Jesus can leave the upper room of his own accord and take his disciples outside the city gates of Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley and then up onto the Mount of Olives. Notice, Jesus is leading his guys here knowing that this is where he will be betrayed and arrested. Jesus knows it. And so he says to his guys, I want you to know I want you all to know not just what's going to happen to me, but what's going to happen with you. You will all fall away. You will all abandon and desert me because you cannot and will not go where I am going. I must go to the cross alone because I'm the only one who can bear the sins of the world. Guys, you'll remember that it, this is what was prophesied back in Zechariah 13, verse 7 in the Old Testament, where we read, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus finds strength in remembering what God had said in the Old Testament and, and, and then speaking it to his disciples. 
And that's significant, especially when you understand that in Zechariah 13, verse 7, it is God the Father speaking of what He will do to the Son. I will strike the shepherd. I will strike my very own Son whom I love. And this is what we refer to as the doctrine of penal substitution. It's the Father laying on the Son the penalty and the punishment for our sins. So Jesus, the perfect, holy, sinless Son of God, is struck down by the Father in the place of unholy, unrighteous, undeserving sinners. It's what we read in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 6. Surely He, Jesus, has borne our sorrows, borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why would God do that? With His one and only Son, whom He loves deeply. Why would God strike down his son? It's because of what we read in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we, like sheep, we have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord then, out of love for the son and love for us, lays on him the iniquity of us all. What did that look like? What did that feel like? What did that sound like? Isaiah 53, verse 10 answers that. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The father strikes the son. Crushes the son. Smites the son. Because the father is laying our iniquities on his son. The Bible clearly says that. But there are so many today who have a problem with that. They refer to the doctrine of penal substitution as cosmic child abuse. But that cannot be true. This is not a case of child abuse. Jesus dying on the cross. It is not for two reasons. Let me give them to you. One, on the cross, the Father is not hating the Son. He is loving the Son. And He's loving us through the Son. And two, on the cross, Jesus is not a helpless victim. He is a willing sacrifice. Listen to what Jesus himself says to his disciples earlier in John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, get this, for this reason the Father loves me. The Father doesn't hate me. The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I lay it down. No one takes it from me. Not Judas, not the religious leaders, not the Roman soldiers, not even God himself takes Jesus' life from him. I lay it down of my own accord. So we have two subjects actively involved in the cross, the Father and the Son, the Father striking the Son, the Son laying down his life. Not unwillingly, but willingly. I have the authority to do that, Jesus says. I have the authority to lay my life down, 
and I have the authority to take it up again. So Jesus doesn't just have authority over life and death. He has authority over his own life and his own death because he says, this charge I have received from my father. Now I want you to catch something here that we can easily overlook. In John 10, 17 and 18, look at these verses on the screen. Notice that everything Jesus says about his death here is bracketed in his relationship with his father. Jesus leads, he opens the bracket with this, for this reason the Father loves me. And he concludes with this, he closes the bracket with this, this charge I received from my Father. Relationship. Jesus wants us to know that everything that he endures on the cross is rooted in his Father's love for him. Not hatred from the Father. Towards him. So when the Father strikes him and smites him and crushes him and lays the punishment for our sins upon him, it is not the Father hating an unwilling son, forcing him against his will to endure something he's unwilling to do. It's the Father loving a willing son who lays down his life for us on our behalf, for our sake, in our place. Do you see the depth of the Father and Son's love for you? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. You see that love. What kind of love is this? That the Father would lay upon the Son our sins. The punishment, the penalty, the death. Romans 5 verse 8 puts it this way. But God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I, that's, that's why Jesus trades places with us on the cross. It's out of love. It's because of love. It's in love. That's why 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous in our place. Why? It's the only way we could ever come to God. So that he might bring us to God. That's how deeply God loves us. That's how deeply the Son loves us. Without Jesus, there is no way to God. So I need to ask, have you trusted in Jesus as the only way to God? Have you come to him? Have you fallen before him in faith as your Lord and Savior and King? You're trusting in him alone. Because of what he has done for you. John 3.16 puts it this way. Everybody knows this verse with it being football season. You still see on poster boards behind the goalpost John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Is that you? Have you come to Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you repented of your sins and embraced him alone by faith alone? I plead with you, come to Jesus. See the love.
I will strike the shepherd. And the shepherd will willingly be stricken. Would you trust him? What more can he do? What more can he be? What more can he endure to convince you of his love for you? Come to him in faith. I plead with you to trust in Jesus because death is not the end of the story for Jesus. Life is, and that's why Jesus says right here to his guys, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I'm going to be raised up. So guys, the Father won't just strike me. He will raise me from the dead. He will not abandon me. He will bring me back to life. And so the only way you will ever understand my death is to view it through the lens of my resurrection. So when Jesus is nailed to the cross, you know what that means? It means that God is not improvising. God is not trying to make the best of a situation gone terribly bad. It's God's good and loving plan from eternity past that culminates not just in a cross, but in an empty tomb, which means there is divine intentionality and purpose to all of it. And that's why when we face temptation, our confidence is not in ourselves. It is in God who pulled off the death and resurrection of Jesus so perfectly that we can echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 verse 6 and we can say this, I am sure of this. The cross and the empty tomb take away any and all doubt of this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. He will always be with us and for us. I am sure of this. When you face temptation, you know that? Are you sure of that? You think of that. You have this kind of confidence, not in you, but in him. It's the same kind of confidence we see from Jesus on this night. It's a confidence that is anchored in God's word. What God has said, what God has promised way back in the Old Testament. Listen, that is where our strength is found in the word. Because we are inherently weak in the face of temptation. Jesus is strong. We are weak. And that's why on this very night when the pressure ramps up on these disciples, they will abandon Jesus, they will desert Jesus, and they will hightail it away from Jesus. And when on the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them what's going to happen with them, that they are going to forsake him, it's like they don't even hear what he has said about his resurrection. You notice that? It's like the death and resurrection of Jesus just flies right by them because Peter pipes up and he says, Jesus, I, it's like, I didn't really even catch all that you said there. But when you talked about the sheep scattering and us falling away from you, that got my attention. So let me set the record straight here. Um, let me break it to you. I will not fall away from you. What God said back in Zechariah about the sheep scattering, that does not apply to me. Listen, one of the telltale signs that self-confidence has taken root in our hearts 
is when we, like Peter, begin deflecting. It's deflection. It's Peter here. Jesus, what you're saying doesn't apply to me. What God said doesn't apply to me. And when we say that, when we say that God, what you say in your word doesn't apply to me, that is a very scary place to be. So let me ask, is that your M.O.? God, I know what your word says, but that just doesn't apply to me. It's, not, it's just not for me. I remember a Sunday way back in the 90s. This was back in Iowa. I was standing at the back door of our church after preaching and greeting the people there. And one of our church members came up and said, Pastor Ken, thank you for preaching God's word. And by the way, when I say things like this, give illustrations like this, I'm wondering to myself, are, are God's people today, when they greet me at the back door, are they going to be extra careful with what they say? <laughs> but that member said to me, Pastor Ken, thank you for preaching God's word, but what you said today just doesn't apply to me. But I'm sure glad that Sally was here because it definitely applies to her. That's what was said. That's Peter here. His self-confidence shows up first in deflection. Your word doesn't apply to me. And then in comparison. It's verse 29. I mean, Peter is so full of himself. He's so sure of himself that he says, Jesus, even though these other guys are going to go AWOL on you and bail on you, I'm not like them. You can count on me. I'm all in, Jesus. Don't question it. Believe it. And when we begin thinking that we're better or stronger than our brothers and sisters in Jesus, especially when our brothers and sisters fall, and we think to ourselves, you know, I would never do that. I would, I would never go there. Look out. We're in danger. And we begin to think that we're better or stronger or bigger because deflection and comparison are both rooted in presumption. Peter is shamelessly proclaiming that he's the better and stronger disciple. And Jesus says, Peter, listen, I'm not just talking to the other ten guys here. I'm talking to you. Truly I tell you that this very night before the rooster crows twice, so before 3 a.m., just a few hours from now, Peter, you will deny me, not once or twice, but three times. And maybe Peter shakes his head and puts up a hand when he says emphatically, you are dead wrong, Jesus. I know you better than, I know me better than you know me. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. You get me, Jesus? Listen, please. When we presume that we're big enough and strong enough and good enough to handle temptation on our own, we're setting ourselves up for a big-time fall. That's why Proverbs 28 verse 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Because as Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When we read this, we should be asking ourselves, how can Peter be so pompously self-confident? Well, the answer is in Luke's account where Luke tells us about this scene, something that Mark doesn't. 
Because here in this scene, right at this moment, Jesus tells Peter that Satan is behind this. You know, we may think that Satan's only tactic is convincing people that God's grace isn't enough. But I believe that Satan's go-to tactic is tempting people to believe that God's grace isn't necessary. I've got this. I'm good. I'm enough. I can do life on my own. Again, that's an eternally scary place to be. And that's why in Luke chapter 22, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon. It's the first time that Jesus is called Simon, uh, Peter Simon in a long time. That's his old name. Peter, you're acting like your old self. You're living the old way. You're thinking old thoughts before you came to me. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's Jesus saying, Peter, your strength is found only in me. And when you fall, you will learn that you aren't strong enough to hold on to me. But I am strong enough to hold on to you. And that's why after you try to do it on your own and fall, I will lift you up. The same way I did when you tried to walk to me on the water and fall, and you fell. And I was there. You weren't holding on to me. I was holding on to you. And I will lift you up. I will not forsake you. I will not quit on you. I will be enough for you even when you fall. And you will return again and strengthen your brothers. I'm not done with you, Peter. Trust me. And this is when we'd expect Peter to fall at the feet of Jesus and cry out, Jesus, I'm so wrong. Please help me. I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need you. I can't do this on my own. I can't stand strong in the face of temptation without you. But Peter doesn't do that. Peter doesn't say that. Instead, Peter doubles down and digs in his heels, trusting in himself. If I must die with you, I will never deny you. Ever. Peter says it so emphatically that he not only convinces himself, he convinces the other disciples that Jesus is dead wrong about them. And so they all say to Jesus, all of us, Jesus, we're, we're all in. We will all die with you. We will never deny you. And then, just an hour or two later, when Jesus is arrested, verse 50 happens. They all leave Jesus and flee. And then later that night, verse 72 happens. The rooster crows a second time, immediately after Peter has denied Jesus a third time. It all happens just as Jesus said, proving that we, even the best of us, even the strongest of us, is inherently weak in the face of temptation. Now, I don't know where you might be facing temptation this morning. Maybe you aren't denying Jesus with your words. Maybe it's with your actions. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe you're giving in to fear and anxiety, trusting in what you can see and what you know, rather than trusting in who God is and what He has said and promised. 
Or maybe none of those describe you, but let me remind you that the seeds of every sin live within our hearts. None of us is above any sin. None of us is above any degree of any sin. And like Peter, each of us is vulnerable when we're trusting in self, when we're following our heart when we're banking on our own willpower. But the good news is that Jesus is for us what we could never be for ourselves. Jesus is strong, infinitely strong. So I want to close this morning by giving you three ways that we can plug into the temptation overcoming power of Jesus. First, feed your soul on the Word of God. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Be here on Sundays and Wednesdays when the Word of God is taught. You plug into the power of Jesus by feeding your soul on the Word like Jesus. It's what we learn from Him right here. He faces the cross how? By singing the Word and by speaking the Word that He remembered from the Old Testament. Why? Because temptation overcoming power is found in the Word. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young man, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can he stay free from temptation? By guarding it according to your Word. I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Listen, the only way we will live by this book is to live in this book. So fight temptation by feeding your soul on the Word of God and secondly, by surrounding yourself with the people of God. It's what God says at the very beginning of this book. What He says way back in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because we are vulnerable when we're alone. We're susceptible when we isolate ourselves from our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Isn't it significant that later on this very night when Peter is tempted to deny Jesus, where are the other disciples? They're not there. Peter has isolated himself from them. Peter is alone facing temptation. None of the other disciples are there to come alongside of him and strengthen him in the face of that temptation. You see, God intends this church to be a place of safety and strength for you. Would you pray with me that God makes us that kind of place for all of his people? Or we're surrounded by God's people who are loving us and encouraging us, and protecting us, and praying for us. It's Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you like Peter to fall away from the living God. And here's the antidote for that. But exhort one another every day. Encourage one another every day. Let's be life on life here at Bethel as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So surround yourself with the people of God. Feed your soul on the word of God. And then thirdly, you plug into the power of Jesus by staying in constant communication with God. It's what the Bible says, pray without ceasing. 
Because prayer is all about acknowledging our weakness. Prayer says, God, I need you. I can't do this, but you can. Your will, not mine. Your plan, not mine. Your power, not mine. Prayer clothes us with power by stripping us of self. And prayer is so essential to withstanding temptation that notice as this scene closes, Jesus is heading into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And if the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful Son of God finds it absolutely necessary to fight temptation with prayer, how much more should we? It's what Jesus says to his guys down in verse 38 here. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because although, Peter, your spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. That's why we pray as Jesus taught us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because the greatest danger we face is the danger of self-confidence. We are strong only in the strength of someone else. Only in the strength of Jesus. The infinite strength of Jesus. So, stay in communication with God. Surround yourself with the people of God. Feed your soul on the Word of God. Stay plugged into the power of Jesus. And as Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, you will be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in Him. Amen. Father, we have looked into the mirror this morning. And as we look into the mirror, we don't see Peter. We see me. I see myself. God, we need you. We are weak, but you are strong. The one who goes to the cross for us and endures for us there what only the all-powerful Son of God could endure. Not just the nails, not just the crown of thorns, not just the taunting, but your wrath, your eternal wrath against every one of the sins of everyone who will ever trust you. Wow. Jesus endures. He lives. May we trust him. May we find in him that he is enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen.